good singing this morning. You may be seated. Good singing indeed. Take your Bibles this morning and turn to Hebrews chapter number 7. Wanted to say thank you to those that were able to help over Friday and Saturday in the church cleanup. Went on around here. If you were able to help on any of the days in any of the ways, would you stand for me? I like embarrassing people when I can. Stand up if you were able to help. Jason, you got to stand up. There you go. All right, Brother Mike. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, Nick. And we had about five or six in the early morning hour. Uh, thank you so much for those that were serving. You may be seated. I appreciate you immensely. We had two folks that aren't even church members that were helping us. And so I appreciate those that were out and helping uh, in, a, in, uh, in every way that we can. Um, a couple of you came and said, Pastor, I just can't do it anymore. I understand that. I appreciate you praying. I was worried that there was going to be rain. And so those that were praying, we had safety, especially if you saw some of us up on the top of that lift trimming the tops of the trees. It was not fun. It was not safe. If you were up, I mean, it was safe-ish, but uh, prayer always helped uh, making sure like the, the piston or the pump or whatever, I'm not mechanical, that it did, that articulating arm did not give way. But uh, it was a good morning uh, on yesterday morning and then a good afternoon on Friday. And a lot, a lot was accomplished around the church as well. Well, we've made it to Hebrews chapter number 7, and we are really going to end some of the personal things about who Christ is in His perfection. Beginning in chapters 8 and 9 and following to the end of the book of Hebrews, it's more practical application. Uh, There is still some principles, but uh, they're very practical as we look at them. Uh, This morning we are looking at our superior Savior, and in particular, the superiority that he has in his perfection. Let's read the first three verses, we'll pray, and then we'll jump into the preaching this morning. The Bible says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being, by interpretation, king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace, without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually. This morning we're going to look at Melchizedek. Many of us have heard that name and not many of us know what that means. We're going to look at the person this morning, but really the perfection of Christ in the type of Melchizedek that is given to us in the Old Testament. Let's open in a word of prayer and we'll jump right into the preaching today. Father, I pray that you'll help us this morning. As we gather around your word, we find in this wonderful chapter of Hebrews, joy for the believer, completion. When we talk about perfection today, Lord, we are talking about our Savior, Jesus Christ, that we are complete in Him, as the Apostle Paul wrote. Help us to understand that in the context, Lord, of what the writer was trying to convey to the reader, the Hebrew audience. It does not nullify the importance for us this morning of the New Testament age. And so I pray that you'll help us to understand and to know just how perfect Christ is, and just what that perfection meant when it came to the completion of the law. 
Bless all that is said and all that is done in this hour, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We have seen from chapter 1 that Christ is superior in His person. From chapter 2, He is superior in His purpose. From chapter 3, superior in His position. Chapter 4, His promise. Chapter 5, His priesthood. Chapter 6, His principle. And now this morning we are going to look at the perfection of Jesus Christ. He is superior to the law in that it was imperfect and He is perfect. What a joy that will be for us as we come to the end of the message this morning to know that if we know Christ as our Savior, then there is nothing else that we need. It's Him and it's Him alone. God, through His Word, has progressively revealed His redemptive plan. What the writer is giving to us here in Hebrews chapter 7 is that Christ is the completion of that plan. He is the perfection of it, not merely perfect in His nature, for He is, He was God, but also in His accomplishment, what He did while He was on this earth. So there's a lot for us to cover this morning. We'll keep the introduction short and the preaching long this morning. Let's look first in our notes and see His perfection. And the writer shows us first the template for His perfection. In verses 1 through 10, we find the template of what Christ would be and who Christ was. Let me ask you this question this morning. How would you demonstrate to a Jewish reader how Christ was perfect, how He was complete, how He was better than what they had? How would you demonstrate that? Well, the answer is you would have to go back to the Old Testament and find examples that were outside the law that spoke to the incomplete or imperfect nature of the law. The law was necessary. The law was good. We'll even find this morning from Galatians 3 that the law is our schoolmaster. But the law could not do what Christ could do. He and He alone can save. The law could only bring you to the fact that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Christ could save you from those sins. And this is what the writer is going to get across to his reader in this chapter 7. God, we find, chose Melchizedek. Now, some of you, when I say that, think I just sneezed. Bless you. Uh, That's not what Melchizedek means. Melchizedek literally means king of righteousness. That's what the name itself means. So the template is seen first in this mysterious man. It has a man of mystery in it, letter A. Verses 1 through 3 give to us this mysterious man. But if you have your Bibles, turn back with me to Genesis chapter number 14. Hold your place here and we'll look back in Genesis chapter number 14. And we'll study the the only instance that we read of this man, Melchizedek. He is referenced, as we heard this morning, in Psalm 110 and verse 4. And he is spoken of again here in our passage in Hebrews chapter 7. But it is at the end of Genesis 14 that Melchizedek the man appears on the scene. This man in his reference is found in Genesis 14, and we begin our reading in verse number 18. The Bible there says, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him, that is, Melchizedek blessed Abraham, and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thine hand. And he, the he here is direct reference to Abraham, gave him, that is Melchizedek, uh, 
tithes of all, or all of the spoil and the increase that he had just taken in this victorious battle. The context from this, and you can turn back to Hebrews 7 now, the context of this passage in Genesis 14 is that Lot, his nephew, had been taken into captivity with the people of the city of Sodom, cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and several other kings. Abram was the one that went and rescued them. On the way back from rescuing them, the king of Sodom, which was the king of wickedness, the king of unrighteousness, the king of all things unholy, comes and meets him and says, keep the possessions, but give me the people. By the way, the devil always wants the people. He doesn't care about our possessions. He just wants people to be damned to hell. That's what his desire and hatred circles around. It is within that context that this mysterious man, Melchizedek, lands on the scene. And as quickly as he appears, he leaves the scene. It would be as if someone came for a desired and specific purpose and then left. Similar to another man that came, lived, died, was buried, rose again, and then ascended on high. He came and he was gone. There is obvious linkage between Melchizedek and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, theologians, and you know what I give for theologians, not much, but theologians who study these things give us three possibilities for who this man could be. The first possibility, this Melchizedek in Genesis 14, could be a priest of a town called Salem. Now, sometimes theologians give us those duh responses, right? Well, that's obvious. That's who it says he is. Well, we could link it to Job. In the book of Job, one of the four that come and console him or confront him, however you want to look at it, is also a priest, and it seems that he's a priest of the Most High God. It could be that this Melchizedek legitimately was a man of a city, Salem, and was a priest of the Most High God. That's possible. The second possibility that we could find is that it might be Shem. Now, I don't mean for those that don't know the Bible at all, Shem of Larry Moe and Curly fame, the fourth stooge. I mean Shem, the son of Noah, the one through whom the blessing would come. If you study the lineage and the chronology, Shem lived 500 years after the flood. He would have been alive when Abram was born and was walking this earth. It is likely that Shem in chronology or chronological timeline would have died just before Abram himself, who became Abraham, him died as well. It is possible that this is Shem. That is one other possibility that theologians give us. But I would argue as a pastor, none of those answer who this man is. Hebrews chapter 7 answers who this man is. I believe it's a pre-incarnate Christ who is on the earth. We know that in Genesis chapter 18 that God, the Lord, comes with two angels, meets Abram, and in the process of meeting Abram and Sarai, he tells them that they'll have a child and that they're going to condemn or going to punish and end Sodom and Gomorrah. We know that that was a pre-incarnate form of Christ. You could go to the book of Daniel in chapter 3 and find Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. And there's one like the Son of God standing there with them, so says the king. We could argue that Joshua in Joshua chapter 5 meets the captain of the host of the Lord's army and that he worships him is another pre-incarnate Christ. I would argue, I believe this Melchizedek is that man. And I believe we find the proof here. And it's important because the template is going to teach us a lesson in just a few moments. It's important for us to at least have a framework of who this type or this actual person was. 
Here are some truths that we can take back here in Hebrews chapter 7 as to who Melchizedek actually belonged to. Melchizedek belonged to an order, according to verses 1 through 3, of priesthood unique in the Bible that was far older than the priesthood of Aaron. The argument in chapters 5 and 6, which are not broken from chapter 7 except for chapters and verse, the argument that is being made is that Christ is not after the priesthood of Aaron. And what we find as a culminating example is neither was Melchizedek. You of the tribes of Israel, you of the lineage of Abraham, you recognized this man Melchizedek. You understood he was a priest of the Most High God. The only priests are not the Aaronic priests, is what the writer is saying. And Jesus Christ stands without or beyond that Aaronic order, that line of Aaron and the lineage of Aaron. Secondly, a second truth that we find in this passage is that Melchizedek had the double rank of king and priest. No priest of Aaron could hold that rank. No priest of Aaron ever would. No king of Israel ever held that rank. The closest to holding the rank of a king and a priest that ever came was when Samuel was a judge and a prophet. But he was a judge, not a king. A third truth that we draw from this that teaches us, I believe, who this man actually is. The Bible says that he did not come to demand a tribute. Remember from chapter 14 in Genesis, what did he do? The Bible says he came bringing what? Bread and wine. Both of those in the Bible are types of who? Christ. He is the living bread and he is the one that spilt his blood for us. The bread and the wine are what Melchizedek brought to Abraham. He's bringing to him elements and types that speak to what we do in the communion or the Lord's Supper. He came not to demand tribute, but to bless Abraham. The the other thing that I think is interesting, he did in the blessing reveal a new name about the nature of God. Here is a great truth. When Abraham met Melchizedek, he learned something new about the divine God, about the God of heaven. When we meet Jesus Christ, there is a new name that we assign to him in salvation, and that is of Redeemer and Savior. The lost of this world, those who do not know Jesus Christ as their Savior, cannot claim that truth about God. He might be their creator, yes, he is of all things, but he is not their redeemer and Savior until by faith they accept the offer of grace in salvation. A fourth truth, Abraham recognized immediately that Melchizedek was far greater. We'll come to this verse in a moment, but look at verse number 7. Here's what the Bible says. And without all contradiction, now, without any argument is what he's saying. The less is blessed of the better. In other words, when Melchizedek showed up with Abraham, who was the father of faith, the one through whom the promised seed was coming, when those two meet, Melchizedek is not the one that is worshiping Abraham. The idea is that which is better blesses the lesser. He's better, so he's giving the blessing. Abraham understood that. Melchizedek simply means, as well, king of righteousness. The writer defines that for us in verse number 2. He was the king of Salem. But what is interesting in this, righteousness and peace met in Melchizedek. Righteousness and peace meet only in the person of Jesus Christ. It is interesting as well that the writer of Hebrews uses proper nouns for the word king of Salem and the king of righteousness, indicating that it is a divine title, not just a mere title for mortals. 
final truth that I think we need to draw from these first three verses is that Genesis is preeminently, among all other things, to this point in Genesis chapter 14, I should say, a book of genealogies. Sometimes when we start reading our Bible, we're excited when we finish chapter 3, and then we get to chapter 4, and everybody starts begatting everybody, right? He begat Heb, and he begat Heb, he begat Heb, and we're like, oh man, I'm lost in the begats at this point. There's a reason for those begats. They're important. They're not just names to read over and run past. But all of those genealogies tell us that when Melchizedek walks onto the scene, we don't know anything about where he came from, and we don't know anything that came from him. He is just here, and he blesses, and then he departs. That is exactly what Jesus Christ did. He came, born of the seed of a woman. He was born into this world as God in flesh. He lived, he died, he rose, and he ascended. He was here effectively without lineage because his father was God. And he leaves without progeny because there's no birth that came from him except for ours, which is new birth. Whomever this man is of mystery, we know this for a fact. He was a template introduced by God 2,000 years before Jesus Christ and 500 years before the law was ever given to Moses on Mount Sinai. Melchizedek is not somebody that we go, well, that's an interesting guy, and move on. We say he's there for a lesson to be learned. And it's in Hebrews chapter 7 that 2,000 years later, God ties the bow to finish the thought on who Melchizedek is and what he teaches us. The template is in a man of mystery, but it also has, let her be, a manifest message. There's something that is obvious. That which is mysterious gives way to that which is manifest. That opens up for us beginning in verse number 4. Now, consider how great this man was, unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoils. And verily, they that are of the sons of Levi, who receive the office of the priesthood, have commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law. That is, of their brethren, though they come out of the loins of Abraham. But he whose descent is not counted from them received tithes of Abraham. In other words, Melchizedek didn't come from them, but he received tithes effectively from Aaron's line of priesthood through their father, through the loins of Abraham, and blessed him that had the promise. And without all contradiction, the less is blessed of the better. And here men that die receive tithes, but there he receiveth them of whom it is witness that he liveth. In other words, he never dies. And as I may say, Levi also, who receiveth tithes, paid tithes in Abraham. For he was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. The message is pretty simple to understand in this passage then. There is something, or we might say someone, that is greater than the law. And that person is God himself. He is greater than the law. The law is a component of us drawing close to God or understanding how far we are from God. But the law is not God. It is just a religion that the Jews at this point had made it into. The writer of Hebrews is forcing his readers to see how much more they have in Christ than they ever could have in the Levitical or Judaic rituals. He effectively is asking them, who would want a high priest drawn from among Aaron's sons when they can have something far better, far more perfect in the person of Jesus Christ? Abraham recognized who Melchizedek was. 
He recognized what Melchizedek represented. Abraham would have worshipped and welcomed Jesus Christ, I believe, because he would have recognized him as the one that brought him bread and wine. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying is stop living in your religion and look beyond it to the relationship that God wants you to have. These children of Abraham needed to realize what they had in Christ as their Savior. The template of Melchizedek perfectly teaches Christ's superiority to the law. That's why he's given here. He's not just a random figure that is thrown in here for us to learn a lesson and be confused in it. It's to learn the lesson to be confident in who Christ is. We see perfectly, second, in verses 11 through 14, the trouble. Now, everything that we've learned up through verse 10 is going to create trouble for the Jewish reader. There's going to be a conundrum. There's going to be a crossroad. There's going to be a moment of decision. There's going to have to be a departure from one to the other, either direction they go. The writer sets the hook for us in these four verses. The trouble for the Jews is that their king, King David, revered by men and them, honored by God, said that another priest would come and that his order would not be after Aaron. It would be Melchizedek. Psalm 110 and verse 4 is not just planted in the middle of the Bible absentmindedly. God says, no, I want to remind you through the great psalmist of Israel, King David, that that person was important because he was a type and a picture of the most important that would ever come even out of the line of David, and that is Jesus Christ. He has set the hook for them by drawing them to their beloved King David. I mean, David can't be wrong, right? He's David. And the answer is no, he was perfect in his writing because he was inspired by God to write it. That Psalm 110 that was read at the beginning of the church is a beautiful psalm because that psalm gives to us Christ in his first advent and then later Christ in his second advent. In his first advent, Christ did not crush the heads of many countries. (laughs) But we read in verses 6 and 7 of Psalm 110 that he does. He will come again, and when he comes again, he will rule and reign as the king of this earth. Now he stands as king of kings and lords of lords and waits to do that on this earth so that we might graciously receive him if you've not received Jesus Christ as your Savior this morning. The question before the reader of Hebrews was this, who is this Jesus and what trouble will he cause in your life if you stay in Judaism? This meant for them that their religion was incomplete. Their religion was imperfect, and that's a tough thing to hear. By the way, today, religion will always leave you incomplete and imperfect. Only a relationship with Jesus Christ by faith in Jesus Christ alone can be confidently sure in your mind that you're on your way to heaven. It's the only confidence that you can have. So we find the trouble begins, letter A, in the fact that the law must change. The reader here is confronted with the fact that the law has to change. Look at verse 11. If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that in another priest should arise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? That's a good question. (laughs) Think about it, he's asking. 
For the priesthood, being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. For he of whom these things are spoken pertaineth to another tribe, of which no man gave attendance at the altar. He says in verse 13, effectively, nobody came to the altar and said, Hey, is somebody from the tribe of Judah here that I can offer my sacrifices on the altar with? No, they came and said, I need a priest of the tribe of Levi. The law then is ineffective. The law is incomplete. The law cannot get you to the point of salvation. It cannot keep you in salvation. Verse 14, for it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah, of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning the priesthood. In other words, the statement of King David was very necessary because Moses didn't tell you about this guy. I mean, Moses recorded the story for us in Genesis 14, and we thank him for that. But within the law, and this is the direct audience, I'm not arguing against Moses. Moses was a godly servant of the Lord, faithful to the end. But the argument here is against the law and what they were holding on to, their religion, their tradition, their rituals, those things that they could do to make themselves feel better. And they were missing the relationship. What he says is the law must change. Jesus, by the way, quoted from Psalm 110. In the, in the Gospel of Matthew, to confound the Pharisees. Peter, in Acts chapter 2, quoted from Psalm 110, to convict the gathered Jews at Pentecost. Our writer in Hebrews uses Psalm 110 to confirm Christ's ordered priesthood. Psalm 110 and verse 4, I read for us once again. It's given to us several times here in Hebrews 7. It says, the Lord hath sworn and will not repent. He will not change his mind on this. The law must change. God is not going to change. Woo. I mean, think about being a Hebrew reader hearing that. Yikes. Well, I like my law. Do you like the law better than you like God? No, I I love God more. Good, then the law served its purpose, but its purpose is complete. He finished by saying, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The questioner is asking the reader, If the law was perfect, then why did David write what he wrote in Psalm 110? It's a good question, isn't it? He wrote what he wrote because he was inspired by God, number one. And the answer is, it's because who Jesus Christ is. The answer is simple. David, Abraham, Moses, and every other faithful Old Testament saint looked for the coming Messiah. They did not look for their hope in the law. They looked for the Messiah who would come to conquer, who would come to liberate, to come to free, To lead and to save, the leaders of Judaism at Christ's first advent wanted nothing to do with Jesus Christ. They had constructed a law and traditions unknown to their Jewish forefathers. The law was needed, but the writer of Hebrews is telling us it was limited. You could not keep it outwardly, or excuse me, you could keep it outwardly, but you could do that and still not love God inwardly. When God said to Christ, and that's who is speaking in Psalm 110 and what David is recording, Thou art a priest forever, he was actually setting aside the Levitical priesthood founded in Aaron because Christ would fulfill the law in his sinless death. Through his resurrection, a New Testament would be written. By the time we get to chapters 8 and 9 here in the book of Hebrews, we're going to find that it takes the death of a testator to bring in a New Testament. We live in a New Testament because of the blood of Jesus Christ. The law changed, for the law effectively is what the writer is arguing in verse 14. The law is in Christ, letter B. 
For it is evident, it's obvious to all of us, that our Lord sprang out of Judah. We know this to be true. Of which tribe Moses spake nothing concerning the priesthood. So the law changed, but the law changed because Christ came. How do we know the law concluded? Well, there's plenty of passages in the New Testament that teach us this. Romans 10 and verse 4, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. To the Galatian church, Paul wrote this in Galatians 3 and verse 23, But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. By the way, not by the law. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. To the Ephesians, Paul wrote this in chapter 2 and verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. Let me pause for a second. He is peace. That's the king of Salem, by the way. We're going to read and keep reading that he's also righteousness. That's the king of righteousness. We find that he broke down the middle wall of partition. When Jesus Christ died on the cross of Calvary and cried from the cross, it is finished. The Bible records that the temple veil between the holy and holy of holies from top to bottom was rent. Some scholars believe that that veil was up to 18 inches thick. Good luck ripping or even cutting something that long and that strong. But God said, no, when he cried, it is finished and his blood was shed as our sacrifice, that partition, that middle wall of partition was broken down because a better high priest had come in the person of Jesus Christ. We keep reading. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances. By the way, this is instructive verse. The ordinances were of the law, but the oath, the oath, In Psalm 110 and verse 4, God swore by himself and will not repent, it says. In other words, he made a promise and oath. God's word is greater than the law or just the ordinances. For to make in himself of twain one new man so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity, that is our sin nature. He has defeated sin because he lived sinlessly thereby. Christ, friend, ended the law. The believer must believe that. The writer is drawing their conclusion or their minds to a concluding thought. You too, believer, must understand that. It is interesting, the law that is in Christ encompasses the Mosaic law, but it eclipses it as well. What is the law of Christ? When we conjure that thought in our mind, what does it mean, the law of Christ? Well, we could look at Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. The Bible says that if we bear one another's burdens, we so fulfill the law of Christ. Paul, writing to the Corinthians, wrote the same thing. The idea of the law of Christ is not something that is legal and binding. It is loving and in a relationship. Mark chapter 12, verse 29, the Bible says this, And Jesus answered him. He's answering the scribe of the Pharisees who had asked him, what is the... Greatest commandment. He says, the first of all commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like, namely this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is none other commandment greater than these. The emphasis here is on love. 
Not on the legality of it. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. With every part of your being. In the Old Testament, they could love God outwardly, but hate Him inwardly. The priest would never know. God would. But the priest, if he just kept every year coming and not openly committing sin that was against the law, but just lived his life quietly out on his farm, away from everybody, he could come every year and offer up his sacrifices and walk back home to his house and say, this is dumb. Inwardly, he could believe something differently than what he was manifesting outwardly. What God says, the perfection that comes in Christ is we love him inwardly, thus we also love him outwardly. We don't need these rituals anymore. Pastor, I wish you would just write down what I'm supposed to do. God already did. Yeah, Yeah, but it's easier if you make the list for me. (laughs) Well, I'll leave something off. He didn't. Loving with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Christ has freed us from the bondage of hundreds of commands and thousands of principles and precepts that were binding to the Old Testament saying, we are, yes, freed from them, but we are freed to live the law of Christ. A life of love and grace and kindness and mercy and temperance and patience and meekness. Against such, the Bible says, there is no law. We are called away from a life of legal living to a life of loving relationship with Him. That love motivates our attitudes and our actions. It is both our inner and our outer man. The template and the trouble show us the perfection or completeness of who Jesus Christ is. They have been addressed, and the writer in verse 15 moves on to triumph. I'm going to be honest with you. Something cannot be perfect if it isn't victorious. It cannot be perfect if when you try it, it doesn't work. Paul, writing to the Romans, said that we are more than conquerors through him that loved us so. And so we find here the triumph for us in verses 15 and following. He's just told them it's evident that Jesus didn't come from the tribe of Levi. He came from the tribe of Judah. But then in verse 15, he says this, And it is yet far more evident. For that after the similitude of Melchizedek, or in the, in the likeness, in the type, in the template of Melchizedek, there ariseth another priest. This is obvious, he says. Well, obvious from where? Genesis 14 and Psalm 110. The reader of this, the Jew who was struggling with falling back into his old legalistic ways, his old ritualistic ways, his old religion, he is being told, look, it is obvious that's not what you need. It's obvious you must move on to this. It gets better if we keep reading in verse 16, who is made not after the law of a carnal commandment or fleshly commandment, but after the power of an endless life. If that's not underlined in your Bible, it should be. You and I, you and I have been made after the power of an endless life because that's what Jesus Christ is. For he testifieth, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before the weakness and unprofitableness thereof. Man, he lays an axe to the root of the law. He says, it's done. It's been disannulled. It was unprofitable. It didn't save a single soul. It just told them how much they were sinners. 
Christ saves us. For the law made nothing perfect, verse 19. But the bringing in of a better hope did. Who was that better hope? Jesus Christ. By the which we draw nigh unto God. Oh, what joy. No one drew close to God through the law. They would come, even with the most penitent heart, even with the most purest of intentions, with a life lived in accordance to His Word, they would come to the priest and they would be left in the courtyard. The sacrifice made, the blood sprinkled, entering in once a year to that Holy of Holies, it is then and only then that the high priest alone, not the people, could draw nigh to God. But you and I in Jesus Christ, we're going to find out in a couple chapters, can come boldly before the throne of grace. That middle wall of partition has been taken away. We find here that that old life, thankfully, is over. It is done. We are more perfect. We are complete in Jesus Christ, and what a joy that is. For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did, by the which we draw nigh unto God, and and inasmuch as not without an oath, he was made a priest. For those priests were made without an oath. In other words, the Aaronic priests, they they were there by birthright. God didn't give his word to each of them. They were just there because Aaron was made the high priest and the lineage passed. But this... With an oath by him that said unto him, The Lord swear and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament. It is by God's word. And it settles it. If every other word of God is true, the writer is saying, then this word of God is equally true. Christ is after the order of a better priesthood. The triumph is given to us. May I say this this morning? Every human being is looking for something more than just this life. While there are seasons of life that are wonderful and joyful, grand and glorious, the truth is that the mortal life is difficult, depressing, and often full of despair. I have a doctor's visit in a couple days. I'm 46. I'm getting older. They keep telling me that my triglycerides and my other eyes and my globulides, I don't even know what they are anymore. They're all too high or they're too low and there's nothing that's perfect. And I thought, I've got to be healthy. I can stand up here for an hour and a half and do this all day. But they tell me that my body is not as fit and fiddle as it used to be when I was in my teenage years or in my 20s. Anybody else in here that may be over the age of 40 can say, I remember back when I used to be able to do. Yeah, life in this mortal body is soft and depressing and disturbing and despairing and all other deeds that you could give. We know this to be true. By the way, this is why religion itself runs amok because it always allows us to do a ritual and feel better. But it's temporal. It's only through a relationship with Jesus Christ that we can actually have triumph, that we can win, that we can overcome, that we can be victorious. Mankind is desperately searching for the complete, sure, hope-filled answer. And the writer of Hebrews says, you found it in Jesus. Be complete in Him. The writer understands that his readers are searching for that perfect answer. The answer is Jesus Christ, my friend. 
He is our perfect triumph. The triumph is letter A, in a new life, in verses 15 through 24. He goes on in verse 23, And they truly were many priests, because they were not, uh, because they were not suffered to continue by reason of death. He said, you know what? There was a slew of high priests. There's a whole lot of them. Look at verse 24. But this man. Well, who's the this man? Was it the this man from verse 4, which was Melchizedek? Or is this man Jesus Christ? And my answer, from my understanding of the Bible, is yes. But this man, because he continueth ever or forever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. It's greater than Aaron's. Leave the law, he's arguing. We find in verse 16, the triumph in a new life is the power of an endless life. It's one of the greatest statements, I think, in the whole of the Bible. Because Jesus Christ rose from the dead, you and I have the power of an endless life. I've often taught in preaching in different passages of Scripture, there is a difference between eternal life and everlasting life. God alone has eternal life. Only God is eternal. And you, in some way, can be like God when you ask Jesus Christ to save you because you receive everlasting life. You and I had a conception. We had a moment we began. But in Jesus Christ, we will never end. We have the power of an endless life. That's what he's talking about here. I love what Abigail said in 1 Samuel chapter 26 to King David. He was coming down to basically just lay waste to her churlish Husband, that's a great Bible word, churlish. Men, don't be churlish. You might have to have your wives asking forgiveness on your behalf. David comes down in 1 Samuel 26, and he is going to lay the wood to Nabal. He is going to get rid of him. He's going to say, you are worthless. Abigail comes out, and by the way, what does Abigail bring? She brings uh, uh, some fatted lambs, some prepared meat. She brings bread. She brings wine. And she meets David in the way and effectively says, don't go kill him. He's a churlish man. That's the kind of guy he is. But she says to David, who is the father in the lineage or the seed of Mary, of Jesus, Jesus Christ, he would be of the root and, uh, of Jesse, of David, coming out of him. She says to David, in you, David, is bound up the bundle of life. Abigail was effectively a prophetess in that moment. She's saying, David, there's life in you. There's something different about you. King Saul knows it. My churlish husband knows it. That's why they all hate you. There's something different about you. And in you, there is bound up this bundle of life. May I say to the believer this morning, Abigail's words are true of us. There is bound up within each one of us who have faith in Jesus Christ a bundle of life. It is the power of the endless life that is ours. Verse 19, the new life has a better hope. And that better hope brings us near to God. In verse 22, Jesus guarantees or is the surety for a better testament. We have something the Old Testament saint longed for, and that is a personal relationship with God. We get it because of Jesus Christ. Don't go back to the old. Christ, having closed the Old Testament and shedding His blood, opens the New Testament, and we find letter B... The triumph is not just in a new life, but is from a new lawgiver. We close the chapter by reading verse 25 and following. It says, Wherefore, he is able also to save them to the uttermost, that come unto God by him, that is Jesus Christ, seeing he ever liveth, 
to make intercession for them. We often read this verse and we think of it as a salvation verse. And of course, that is true. Any person that comes by faith to Jesus Christ, accepting his free gift of salvation, will be saved. Not might be, will be saved. Whosoever will may come. That's the cry of the bride. That's the cry of the spirit. That's the cry of eternity from Revelation chapter 22. Whosoever will may come, the Bible says. Jesus ever liveth to make intercession. But the context is important here. The context is not written to unbelievers. This passage in Hebrews, the context is to believers so that they know they don't need to go back to the priest. They don't need to go back to the old religion, the old tradition, the old things that somebody told them. My grandpappy said this. Listen, I don't care who said it to you. If it's different than the word of God, it's wrong. I hope to God that in our church, no one ever standing behind this desk ever says it wrong. Salvation is by grace through faith. There was triumph. Verse 26, for such an high priest became us. He's speaking personally of Jesus Christ. For such an high priest became us, who is holy. None of Aaron's priests were holy. They were sinful. Harmless. You can read about Eli and what he, as a high priest, his boys did to others many times. You could read about Caiaphas. He harmed the Lord Jesus. But this high priest was holy, harmless, undefiled, that means untouched by sin, separate from sinners. He was not like us, made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once when he offered up himself. We talked about this in the principle last week in chapter 6, but if you believe you can lose your salvation, you are wrong biblically. Salvation given is salvation received, and it is settled forever in heaven. For those that think they have to get saved after they sinned, and get saved after they sinned, and then get saved again after they've sinned again, the Bible says he offered himself up once. In chapter 6, he said that we were crucifying Christ afresh. We were trying to do that over and over. For the law, verse 28, maketh men high priests which have infirmity. Frailty, weaknesses, faults. But the word of the oath, that is the word of God itself, which was since the law or before or in existence when the law came into being, maketh the son. It is God's word that sets the son as the payment for sin, who is consecrated forevermore. I might be careful here. It's not that we needed a new lawgiver. We just needed, and the readers of Hebrews needed fresh eyes on the actual lawgiver. They needed to put away the old and look at the original lawgiver, Jesus Christ, God himself. In closing, it should be easy for us to see then that the order of Melchizedek is superior to the order of Aaron, especially from the last three chapters in Hebrews. Here in chapter 7, the writer has proven historically that Abraham honored Melchizedek above Levi. The writer here in chapter 7 has proved doctrinally from Psalm 110 and verse 4 that God created a new order of priesthood superior 
to the law. And finally, the writer has proven practically that no man could ever satisfy verses 26 and 27 except for the man, Jesus Christ. There is no need, then, to look beyond Christ. He is our perfection. He's all we need. You and I have perfection in Christ. He is our high priest, as we read from chapter 3. After the order of Melchizedek, the right template, not Aaron. The law could not save Israel. Only faith could. Our faith is in Jesus Christ. That was their trouble, and it is our triumph. He gives us new life because He is the lawgiver. The question this morning, perhaps not a convicting one, but a more of a convincing one for those of us who know Christ as our Savior, what are you doing with this reality? You have the perfect salvation. Why aren't you using it properly? Why don't we use it effectively? Why don't we take what we know and put it out into the world day by day, moment by moment, choice by choice? And the answer is because sometimes we just fall back into our flesh. Would to God we would live in His perfection. That's what chapter 7 of Hebrews has taught us. Father, help us this morning, I